Um, I just woke up, but I am honestly pretty excited not to be awake at 3.30 a.m. today, which is going to be the rest of my week. Rachel Lerman is a tech reporter for The Post, who has been waking up early for many weeks to cover the trial of Elizabeth Holmes. Holmes is the founder of Theranos, and she now faces charges of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. This trial has been incredibly high profile. Every day, there are throngs of reporters and cameras, and at the center of it is this one woman. Truly the most striking moment for me was when they called her to the stand because we've just heard so much about her during the trial. And we've heard so much about her in books and documentaries and podcasts and that actually seeing herself speak for herself in person was quite striking. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 6th. Today, we're talking to Rachel to unpack what's been happening in the last three months of this trial, the new information that's come out about Elizabeth Holmes, and what this all says about the pitfalls of Silicon Valley's startup culture. And before we head into this conversation, just a warning that we talk about sexual abuse and assault in this episode. In Silicon Valley, back in the early 2000s, Holmes had this idea for these portable blood testing machines that were small enough to sit on a countertop, but were allegedly able to do the work of a whole blood lab. She started this company, Theranos, when she was young, probably only 19 years old and a student at Stanford. And this company had a technology that it said could take just a couple drops of blood from your fingertip and then run hundreds of blood tests on it. Our belief is that every person, no matter where they live or how much money they have, has the basic human right to access to their own health information. And so our, our mission, our dream is to make it possible, not just in this country, but globally, for people everywhere to begin to have access to this information so that they can use it to live their best lives and to catch the onset of disease in time to do something about it. And Holmes got really famous for being young and successful and visionary. And she got featured in all of these like profiles and was just kind of a shining star of Silicon Valley. She was known for being sort of like a female Steve Jobs who she admired. She wore a black turtleneck. She wore her blonde hair in a bun. She was kind of intense and charming and engaging and just thought of as being really smart and visionary. And what did success look like for this company, Theranos? Like, how popular or how successful did they become? So they grew to hundreds of employees. They raised about $900 million from investors. And they started making deals with Walgreens and Safeway and, you know, big, prominent companies. And they had people on their board and as investors like Rupert Murdoch, the media mogul, like former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, like Henry Kissinger, and all of these kind of huge names that we think of as being, you know, wildly successful and smart people. Theranos became sort of a a hot spot for celebrity in Silicon Valley. And then what happened? 
And then there was a media investigation. The Wall Street Journal broke this huge story in 2015, basically saying that Theranos' technology did not work the way that it was advertising, that it couldn't run hundreds of tests from a couple drops of blood, that employees within the company were really concerned about the erratic and inconsistent blood test results, and that basically what Theranos had built up was untrue. So now Elizabeth Holmes is facing criminal prosecution. What are the charges against her in this trial? So yes, she's facing 11 charges of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Basically, the charges allege that she misled patients and investors by telling them that the company's finances and technology were more successful, more capable than they really were. And how are prosecutors for the U.S. government going about making that argument that Elizabeth Holmes is guilty of this. The really interesting thing about this is that in order to prove that she's guilty, they have to prove that she had intent to defraud. So one of the key parts of that case has been a couple of uh, studies that the company did in its early days with uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, basically just trying to test the technology. But the government has shown that Holmes added those pharmaceutical companies' logos to the top of those studies and then sent them to investors, which gave the impression, they say, that those companies were endorsing Theranos' technology, that Pfizer thought, yes, Theranos' technology works. Well, it turns out that Pfizer and the other pharmaceutical companies say, no, we never endorsed the final version of this report. We did not see this version of it with our logo on it, and we wouldn't have allowed her to send those to investors. Rachel, you said that part of what prosecutors are trying to prove in this case is, quote unquote, intent to defraud, which to me seems pretty obvious, right? Like if you lied to investors about things about your company that you said were true, were not actually true, that seems pretty cut and dry. But why is that question of intent a little bit more complicated in a case like this one? Basically, what Holmes is saying, what her defense is, is that she believed the people below her. She believed her lab director. She believed her second in command. She believed all the employees that were telling her that, like, sure, of course, startups always have some errors or have some issues to work through, but things were generally going well. So her defense is that, yeah, you know, she told investors these things, but she believed what she was saying. She thought what she was saying was representative. She was acting in good faith. This trial has also, I think, pulled back some of the curtain of who Elizabeth Holmes is as a person and what she was dealing with during the time that she was CEO of Theranos. Can you talk a little bit more about what her defense has been and what we've heard from her as part of this trial? Yeah, so mostly her defense has been that she she believed in this company so much. She really acted in good faith. She was trying to make it work, and therefore she was doing her best to make it successful to keep the company going. She also divulged on the stand that she had allegedly been abused by her ex-partner, who was her romantic partner and her business partner. He served as a chief operating officer and... Uh, president of Theranos. She was saying that he had sexually assaulted her, that he had kind of controlled her life, controlled what she ate, how much she slept, what her schedule looked like. That man, Sonny Balwani, is charged with the same crimes as Elizabeth Holmes, although they had their trials severed and his trial is scheduled to start in January. 
He hasn't said anything since she took the stand, but in documents before the trial began, he has denied this abuse. What was it like watching Elizabeth Holmes talk about this on the stand? It was quite emotional. You know, she teared up. She's very composed normally. She's very charming on the stand. She she has great posture. She's very kind of measured and relaxed. And when this came up, she was more emotional, but basically just said, you know, this was a huge part of my life. It impacted everything I did. I'm wondering if there are any documents or records from that time in her life that give a little bit more insight into what was going through her head in the middle of all of this. One of the most striking documents that has come up is a handwritten note that Holmes wrote to herself, kind of with her daily schedule outlined. And it starts with 4 a.m., rise and thank God, 4 to 4.15, wash face, change. It's segmented into these really small you know, chunks of time with really specific instructions, even down to, you know, the menu for her lunch. And this is interesting because it actually came up as part of her abuse allegations against her former partner, basically saying that he pushed her to keep such a strict schedule because otherwise he said she wouldn't become a a successful entrepreneur. At the bottom of the schedule, Holmes has also written herself a note that says, I show no excitement all about business. I am not impulsive. I do not react. I am always proactive. And it kind of goes on and on like that. She says a lot of this, you know, was coming from the allegedly controlling aspects of her relationship with her ex-partner. But it sort of shows how strict and prescribed she was trying to make her life. Wow. I, I, I feel like that, to me, feels deeply sympathetic these kinds of like mantras to herself or this kind of forced schedule was part of her uh, experience as, as a person who was abused. I mean, that's even m- more kind of heartbreaking. But I also just feel like it shows how much pressure was on her and a person who's ambitious and trying to be successful and clearly had ambitions to be a certain kind of person and trying really hard to be that person. Um, and it just, I don't know, it's, it's sad to hear. I think that she is very sympathetic on the stand. And I do think that, you know, a lot of aspects of her story are relatable. I think the question there becomes, you know, how much does the jury sympathize with her and how much do they separate that out from the alleged fraud? It also seems like this trial has been taking a long time. Is that fair? This trial has been taking a long time. This trial has already been going for about three months, and we think it is scheduled to take another, you know, week or two or possibly even three. But it's a long trial, and it's a convoluted case, and a lot of the testimony has been very in the weeds scientifically. We spent six days questioning the former lab director of Theranos. And a lot of that was very technical about specific blood tests. And how is that presenting a challenge either for prosecutors or for for the defense, the fact that this trial has taken so long? I've talked to a couple people about this and they were saying, you know, the jurors might be sort of confused by some of this. Another thing is that we have lost jurors. We have already lost three jurors. We started with 12 jurors and five alternates and are now down to two alternates. What, why, were they, why were they lost? Where did those other jurors go? 
One of those was because of her work schedule. She just couldn't keep it up. Another was because she said her religion didn't believe in punishment and she wasn't comfortable with being part of the process of potentially punishing someone. And one was because she was playing Sudoku while the proceedings were ongoing. And the lawyers didn't find that appropriate. After the break, Rachel and I talk about why this trial is a come-to-Jesus moment for Silicon Valley startup culture. We'll be right back. I think it's also interesting to think about this trial within or as part of the culture of Silicon Valley and these kinds of startups, because there is this sense of fake it until you make it, that it is okay to exaggerate your successes as a company or what you have cooking so far, because the whole idea is to get investors on board to buy yourself money and time and resources to be able to make that dream or that idea of what you're inventing actually reality. And it feels like that in some ways is a central question in this case is like how much of that fake it till you make it is legally acceptable. This is a huge part of it. And I think it's one of the reasons that this case is so fascinating is that you're right. I mean, startups in Silicon Valley have always been known to sort of overhype themselves. They're they're reaching for the stars. They want to show their investors and their business partners their opportunity, not necessarily where they are at the moment. But what Silicon Valley would say, what investors and entrepreneurs here would say is that Theranos crossed a line. It was dealing with patients. It was dealing with healthcare. That's, that's a step too far. Of course, it makes sense that Silicon Valley companies and investors and entrepreneurs would want to try to distance themselves from Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, which has become this, you know, widely public and widespread notion of like uh, of an example of alleged fraud in the Valley. What do you think this case says about the way that we understand fraud in a time of startups and power in Silicon Valley? I think it's so unusual to see startups or tech companies in general taken to court like this. So it's an interesting look inside these startups that are usually quite secretive within Silicon Valley. It's hard to say exactly why Elizabeth Holmes was the one that, you know, ended up in court for this. But of course, we've seen a best-selling investigative book from a journalist about this, a documentary multiple podcasts. And so she's the one that's kind of facing the scrutiny for these practices. And so I think it's an interesting thing where we're kind of trying to figure out where do you draw the line between hype and fraud? And do you think that this case is going to have a chilling effect on other tech companies that have that same attitude of, you know, of course you embellish your success sometimes so that you can get the the money and the attention that you need to actually be successful. Um, Is there a world where people are going to be second guessing that attitude now because of this trial, especially if it's a guilty verdict? I would like to say that Theranos is a cautionary tale, and I'm sure it is for some, but in general, Silicon Valley has really distanced itself from this case, has said, oh, what they did was bad. We are, the rest of us are not like that. This is not what it's like here. It's different. So much of what Silicon Valley does is software or hardware tech companies. So they're dealing with apps, they're dealing with widgets, they're dealing with, you know, backend processes whereas Theranos was dealing directly with consumer and regular people's healthcare. 
So I do think the stakes are different there. I think that it's possible that it gives some people pause, some entrepreneurs a step back to think about what are they actually presenting And it's certainly given some, especially healthcare investors, incentive to look further into biotech companies, to ask for more peer-reviewed studies, to vet the technology as much as they can. But I don't think that overall the hype around Silicon Valley has died down. The idea that you're supposed to promote and hype up and sell your company as best you can, that hasn't gone away. Rachel Lerman is a tech reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnik, edited by Rena Flores, and mixed by Lena Muhammad. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The Post is looking for people who are living with long-haul COVID. If that is you, we want to hear about your experience. What are the symptoms that you've been struggling with? How has it impacted your day-to-day life? We're putting the submission form in our show notes, so check it out there and at postreports.com. And thanks. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.